when I was a student at Oxford, I was studying New Testament in a secular environment. What that basically means is, is that most of my professors and most of my classmates were not Christians. Now, the question that was always rattling around in the back of my mind while I was there was, why don't these people believe? I mean, after all, they were spending more time in God's Word than most people who are genuine believers in Jesus. They were studying it and debating it and dissecting it and reading about it and discussing it. And they were constantly engaged in the study of the Word of God. Yet most of them did not believe in Jesus at all. And the question that always was rolling around in the back of my mind was, why not? Why don't they believe? I had that same feeling about a month ago when a group from Calvary, we went over to Israel and I led a tour and we were going around and seeing lots of different sites where Jesus had been. And you can't help when you're over there but to come face to face with the historical veracity of the record of Jesus. Clearly this man lived and clearly he went all of these places and his, the record of him being there is evident to everybody. But yet there are many Israelis living in the land of Israel who do not believe in Jesus at all. And many casual tourists who go there and see all of the evidence that Jesus was here still don't believe. And again the question, why not? Why don't they believe in Jesus? Last week I was at Cedarville University in Ohio speaking in chapel. And on the way home I was listening to a book on tape. The one I was listening to is called American Sketches. It's by a man named Walter Isaacson. He was the former managing editor for Time Magazine. It was a great book, and he was going through uh, sort of short sketches of significant Americans in the 20th century. And at one point in one of the discussions, he began to try to evaluate the 20th century in light of other great centuries in history. And he began to talk about some of the great people of the 20th century, and then compared it to like the 18th century and the 15th century, two centuries that he said really stood out for the quality of intellectual engagement and influence on the world. And he began to discuss some of the many luminaries that lived during those centuries. But then he made a very stunning statement. As trying to rank centuries for their influence in history, he acknowledged that, well, of course, no century is going to be greater than the first, simply because of the presence of Jesus. Now, as far as I know, Walter Isaac is not a believer in Jesus. But here he is recognizing that of all of the brilliant people who lived in the 15th century or the 18th century or the 20th century, that Jesus alone outweighs all of them, that his influence on world history, just him by himself, outweighs everybody else. And I thought to myself, but why doesn't Walter Isaacson believe? He can see clearly the incredible influence of Jesus. Yet to my knowledge, he's not a believer in Jesus. Why not? Maybe you've asked that question about your friends or family members or coworkers. Maybe they've heard all of the arguments for Jesus. Maybe they've seen your life be radically transformed like Rod was talking about earlier. And you wonder, why don't they believe? Here's the evidence. It's so clear to me. 
yet they don't believe. Why not? Why do some people in our lives, in our family, we've explained it to them, we've showed it to them, we've lived transformed lives, but they yet still don't believe in Jesus? Now, if that question is rattling around in our brains today, surely it must have been present in the first century when Jesus was actually here. Can you imagine being one of the believers in Jesus, one of his disciples, and following him around, seeing him turn water into wine, seeing him heal a centurion's son, seeing him heal a paralytic, watching him walk on water, watching him take a little bit of food and feed 5,000 people, seeing him give a man born blind sight, watching him raise a person from the dead? Surely at some point the question must have come up, why doesn't everybody believe in him? I mean, with all this evidence, why are there some people who do not believe? Well, that's the question that's actually on John's mind when he pens the text that we're going to look at this morning. If you're not there, I invite you to turn to John chapter 12. Sarah read it earlier for us. It's page 762, John chapter 12. And while you're turning, let me just make a side comment. There are no coincidences with God. God runs the show. And he's got everything sort of planned and figured out. And the reason I say that is that I was scheduled to preach on this text 10 months ago. I go away on a study break every year, and during that time I lay out and pray through, God, what is it you want us to talk about, and when, and how. And this text was penciled in for this Sunday, 10 months ago. When I came in Monday morning and opened my Bible to see what we were supposed to be talking about this week, my jaw dropped. And I couldn't believe how relevant what this text has to say is for current events going on in our city and in our country. But I just want to tell you, I've not chosen this text for this morning. It's what's next in John 12. Now, having said I didn't choose it, I do happen to believe God chose it. And I think he chose it a long time ago. And when God chooses to say something to us, I think we do well to listen. And so I have a unique feeling that this text is for us this morning. Because this text is actually answering two questions. The first is, why are there some people who don't believe in Jesus? And the second question is, does it matter? Does it matter that there are people who don't believe in Jesus? So let's dive in and look at what the text has to say, or I should say, what God has to say to us today. Verse 37, John begins, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. That's the point we raised at the beginning of the sermon, is that John is going around with Jesus seeing all of these incredible signs, and surely the same question was in his mind, why don't these people believe? And so he's taking time at the end of chapter 12 to answer that question. John connects their unbelief to a prophecy written 400 years before the time of Christ. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of the prophet, of Isaiah the prophet. 
Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says this was predicted over 400 years before Christ even came on the scene, that not everyone would believe in him. And then John connects that prophecy in Isaiah to something else Isaiah said, verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Now, both the he and the I in that verse refer to God. Now, that's a tough text. That's a hard passage. You hear that passage and you think, well, wait a second. Why do some people not believe? Well, it kind of sounds like God's stopping them from believing. Like if God would leave them alone their natural response would be to believe. But he has stepped in and blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, and so that's why they're not believing. And we begin to recoil a little bit at that. That, that doesn't sound very good to us. But I want you to notice how John lays out his discussion. And specifically, I want you to notice the first thing he says. It's in verse 37. Even after Jesus did all these miracles, they still would not believe in him. What John says up front is, why do some people not believe? Because they have consciously chosen not to believe. They saw the miracles, and they made a willful choice not to believe in Jesus. That's the opening statement John gives us. That's how he introduces the discussion. It's with the thought that some have chosen not to believe. It's only after he makes that statement does he connect their unbelief to a prophecy and saying, but their unbelief has not surprised God. That their unbelief was predicted over 400 years ago and then he says, verse 39, for this reason. For what reason? Because they chose not to believe. Because they chose not to believe, God gave them over to their unbelief. And their eyes were darkened and their hearts were deadened. See, the way John sets this up, he starts from his point of view from their choosing not to believe. And they end up in a place where they cannot believe. Then he gives us this very strange statement in verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now it's mysterious exactly how this all works but John's point seems to be that somehow unbelief has a place in the plans of God. Somehow unbelief has a place in what God is doing in history. After all, this is what Paul says 
in Romans chapter 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That although John and Paul come at this slightly differently, the point they have in common is somehow unbelief is part of the plan of God. Unbelief brings God glory somehow. Now, this is not where John leaves us, fortunately. In verse 42, he continues. Yet, despite the fact that there are some who choose not to believe, at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. As John is thinking about the question, why are there some people who don't believe? Part of the answer is, is because some have chosen not to believe. But the good news is, is that some have chosen to believe. It's just that they're too afraid to tell anybody. So it's sort of good news. But they do believe in Jesus. You see, even among the leaders of the Jewish people, there were some for whom Jesus' message and his power and his love was so overwhelming that they couldn't help but believe in him. Yet they were afraid of what other people might think of them. And so they never told anybody publicly. We think examples of this are people like Nicodemus and perhaps Joseph of Arimathea who came to Jesus at night and interacted with him in ways that other people might not see. Now, what was true in the first century could still be true today, that there are people who are more worried about what others think of them than what God thinks of them. So is it possible that some of my professors and some of my fellow students in Oxford were actually believers in Jesus? But because of the academic pressure not to be, they didn't say anything. Is that possible? Is it possible that some of those living in the land of Israel have become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but because of pressures from family or society or whatever, they're unwilling to come out and say so? Is it possible that Walter Isaacson actually is a believer in Jesus? But because of pressures of his position or in the media, he thinks it's unwise to say so. Is it possible that some of your friends or family members or coworkers actually do believe in Jesus? But because of peer pressure or desire to fit in or wanting to be cool or whatever it might be, 
simply are not saying so. Well, I have to assume if it was true in the first century, surely it's true today. So John's answer to the question, why do some people not believe? He says, well, part of that group actually does believe, but is not saying anything about it. But also it's true that there is still a group who have willfully chosen not to believe. Which leads us to the second question. Does it matter? Does it matter that some of the professors at Oxford and some of my fellow students choose not to believe in Jesus? Does it matter that there are people living in the nation of Israel who choose not to believe he's the Messiah? Does it matter that Walter Isaacson chooses not to believe Jesus? Does it matter that our friends and family members and co-workers choose not to believe in Jesus? Well, if it didn't matter, I think our text would stop at verse 43. It would just be sort of an interesting intellectual inquiry. Huh, I wonder. Some people believe and some people don't. That's interesting. But that's not what John does. John goes on and says in verse 44, Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. See, John seems to think it matters that people don't believe in Jesus. That's why he wrote this book. I mean, after all, why go to all this trouble to put all these stories down? What does John tell us? We say it every week. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It seems to matter to John. In fact, John 12 marks the halfway point in the Gospel of John. And from this point on, chapter 13 and following, Jesus is going to spend a lot more time with his disciples. And this is the end of his sort of public ministry where he's out doing miracles and trying to convince people to believe. And so John, closing this section, says, one more time, I want you to hear from Jesus what he says because it matters. It matters whether people believe in him or not. I mean, listen to what Jesus said. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should Stay in darkness. See, Jesus seems to think that the world is in darkness. And without him, there's no light. He doesn't seem to think we generally dwell in light. And he's just kind of come to hang out with us for a while. We're in darkness. And without him, there's no light. That's why it matters. It matters if we believe in Jesus. Otherwise, we stay in darkness. That's why he continues in verse 47. For the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. And again, if the text stopped here, we would say, Whew, see, no judgment. Jesus is just here to save us. He's just here. We don't have to worry about those who don't believe. Except he continues in verse 48. There is, however, a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. 
For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. See, the point is not that Jesus was sitting in heaven and got bored and thought, I think I'll become a human for all of eternity. That sounds like fun. I think I'll go die on a cross because that sounds like a good time. I think I'll go suffer rejection and persecution because I've got nothing else to do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the world is in darkness and I have been given a very specific message from the Father, not some vague general notions about God, but a very specific message. And God the Father has told me exactly what to say and exactly how to say it. That's why it matters. If it didn't matter, it could just be a a vague, happy feeling. It's not. It's a specific message. And the message is this. The world is in darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. And that those who see Jesus and look and see only a historical figure or a nice guy or an interesting person are not seeing Jesus as he truly is. That he has come as God himself to rescue us out of darkness darkness of this world and darkness of our own making. And Jesus says very clearly, those who reject this specific message, the message I became a human to tell you, the message that I became a human for all of eternity so that you might know, the message that I came and said with the cross, those who reject this message on the last day will face condemnation whether the last day of their life or the last day of history, Jesus says there is a judge for those who reject my words. Now look, this is hard teaching, but the Bible is not unclear about these things. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter three. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus is saying to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which means to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is. See, God not only sent Jesus, he sent the Holy Spirit to help us understand Jesus. He says anybody who rejects what the Holy Spirit tells us about Jesus is guilty of an infinite offense. Not some sort of small deal. This is an eternal sin. And it's an infinite offense against an infinitely gracious and loving God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. 
This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. That's not unclear. Revelation chapter 21, God says, he who overcomes will inherit all this, speaking of the splendors of heaven, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Jude verse 7 says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Matthew chapter 25. On that day, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now this is a hard truth, but it's not unclear. It's not an isolated text. It's in Mark's gospel. It's in Matthew's gospel. It's in John's gospel. Peter tells us about it. Paul tells us about it. Jude tells us about it. It's part of the specific message Jesus himself was commanded by God the Father to say. Is Jesus not clear in John 12 that he's not here making stuff up? That he has a very specific message and he's saying exactly what God commanded him to say. Why does he say these words if they're not true? He's come because we dwell in darkness. And he's come so that we might have light. He says, anybody who's willing to believe in me will have eternal life. But those who reject me and this message will face condemnation. This is a hard truth. But I would not be doing you any favors if I did not portray to you the messages Jesus has given it to us. This is what he says. We may wrestle with it. We may have a hard time with it. It may be tough to figure out, but it's not unclear. And so that leaves us with two questions. One, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you are here this morning, the question is, why are you choosing to continue to not believe? See, we can, we can spin it any way we want. We can say, well, I don't really understand it all, and I don't really get it all, and I never saw Jesus, and I don't know all of this stuff. God is saying to you this morning, you are choosing not to believe. You've made the choice. You've heard the message. 
If you walk out of here this morning, you have made a choice not to believe. And I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, don't do that. Don't do that. John is saying the more you choose not to believe, the harder it becomes to believe. Your eyes begin to darken. Your heart begins to deaden. Now's the time if you hear God speaking to you to say, I believe. I choose to believe. Jesus did not come because we all dwell in light and everything's just fine. He, became, he came because we're stuck in darkness, in confusion, in sin, and we're in danger. And so he came with a very specific message of rescue. That those who will believe in him will not face condemnation, but have eternal life. And so that first question is for those of you who are here this morning who are not yet believers in Jesus. Why keep choosing not to believe? The second question is for those of us who are here who are believers in Jesus. And the question is, do we really think this message is true? Do we really think that Jesus is going to consign those who refuse to believe to eternal separation from God? Because if we do, should we not be more bold about the fact that we are believers? Yes, it's not going to make us popular. I promise you, this message will not make you popular at school or at work or in this city or in this country or in this world. The only person it will make you popular with is God. You can either please men or you can please God. You cannot do both. And if this message is true, Jesus is saying, I'm over here. You want to come with me or not? And are you, will, are you and I willing to stand? Look, the pressure is the same. I feel it just as much as you. I would like to have a nice, soft, easy message that everybody's going to love. I don't want to have to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus and get made fun of by my professors or fellow students or whomever. But if it's true, then I want to stand up for Jesus now. And the other part of that question is, is that if this is really true, should we not redouble our efforts? to pray for those three people on our list. Maybe over the six or seven or eight months, we've gotten a little lax in that. But what, could, what, can, what can hurt from praying for them? I mean, even if we don't know what to say or how to say it, surely we can pray. Why not redouble our efforts to pray more vigorously if Jesus is telling the truth and there is eternal condemnation for those who reject his message? Couldn't we pray a little harder? And could we not do what John and Jesus are doing and present one more time to our friends and family that this is the message? To cry out to them like Jesus is crying out, whoever believes in me will not stay in darkness. I know it will make things uncomfortable. I know people won't like to hear that. But if it's true, then we ought to be like Jesus who doesn't just sort of wish it away but instead cries out with every fiber of his being, please believe, look, investigate one more time. Try to see. So whether you are Christian or non-Christian, this message matters. There are some in this world who do not yet believe in Jesus as their savior. And Jesus is very clear that it matters. 
Let's pray together. Father, these are hard words. They're difficult to preach. They're difficult to hear. They're difficult to own. But Lord God, surely they must be true. Surely if you were simply involved in wanting to win a popularity contest, you would have expunged these from the message a long time ago. But you have come that we might know truth and the truth might set us free. I pray that we would hear clearly from your spirit this morning. First, for those of us who are Christians, that we might remember that the things that we're talking about are not theological debates or discussions, but truth that matters for eternity. And that we might go back to praying faithfully for our three non-Christian friends. and That we might summon the courage to share one more time and in one more way the truth of who Jesus is. And Father, for those who are here today who do not believe in Jesus, who are choosing not to believe, please, Lord, have mercy. Please do not yet give them, give them over to darkened eyes and hardened hearts. Please, even now, let your spirit make one more plea. Let them respond, Lord God. You know that this is true for eternity. We know that it's true. Let them know that. None of us can do anything apart from your spirit. Your word has been preached. We've tried to be faithful to the messages Jesus gave it to us. Would you now, through your spirit, put it in their hearts? Open their eyes that they might see and come to the realization that in Christ is eternal life. Bring them out of darkness, Lord. Only you can do that. None of us is here except because of your grace. Do that for your glory and the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.